90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. It's been so rainy here. I feel like I live in the Pacific Northwest and I love it more than anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's been pretty rainy out here as well. We had, uh, you know, some hail this week. Um, and that's exciting. Did you measure it? Oh, oh, man, this is too much for you. So you got to measure your hail with your patented hail measurer and you got lightning data. Yeah. So actually we haven't talked about the hail ruler at all. I don't think. No, I don't think so. I think you should put a, a picture up though. Cause there's not much. To yeah. Talk so about uh, besides I'll cool link it in the show notes. Shameless plug. <laughs> We got a lot of hail earlier this year, and I said, man, it would be nice if I had something to measure this with other than, you know, holding it in your hand or a ruler or a dime or, you know, all the stuff people put in the photos for scale. Yep. Um, Especially for insurance purposes, because yay for hail damage to the house. (laughs) So I had taken some picture with a DigiKey ruler that's made out of a printed circuit board. And everybody commented not on the size of the hail, but on where did you get that really cool ruler? (laughs) Um, so I have made out of printed circuit board L-shaped hail rulers. Oh, they're so cool, too. Um, I wish I could say that I haven't just stood on the front porch with it in my hand waiting, but I have. (laughs) Yeah, so it's got imperial and metric scales, and then on the back, it's got the colloquial sizes marked, so P, dime, so on. Yeah, that's All the way up to tennis ball, and it's got a depth scale, and it's got a hole so you can put it on a lanyard. There you go. Never be without your hail ruler. <laughs> yeah. So I'll put a link in the show notes. They're a few bucks over on my website, and they're pretty awesome. Yeah, they are pretty awesome. I will, I'll give you that. And the lightning data, did it look good? Uh, yeah. So the sensor I have installed right now in my backyard is a really what we call a slow sensor. Mm-hmm. So it's several seconds, period. Ah. And some of the storms that have come through have had so much lightning that they just saturate it. It doesn't wow. get to decay between strokes. Wow. That sounds like it was beautiful, though. <laughs> yeah, so lots of cool data there. Uh, definitely going to do a redesign over the winter, bump up the sample rate to about 40 kilohertz, and then be able to locate lightning. That's awesome. Cannot wait to beta test that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, too. But it's it's so cool that... You know, a cake pan, a salad bowl, a raspberry pi, and a little custom circuit board are detecting lightning. Hey, Ben Franklin had a kite and a key, man. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if he could tell you the polarity, but I bet he could tell you if it was a good hit or not. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where we're going this week, there's a lot of storms too, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're continuing our march of the gas giants, and it's time to talk about Neptune and Uranus. Yeah, we don't know a lot about these planets. They're really far out there. They're really cold, and I'm very excited to learn the small amount that we do know and hope for another mission, because that's always fun. So this week, we're really excited to be talking to Dr. Amy Simon about Neptune and Uranus. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hello. So, Amy, we've discovered as we've gone through this planetary science series that people like to to call whatever they do by a lot of different names, planetary science or planetary geology or planetary atmospheric physics. Could you tell us about how you got into your field and what you call it? Okay, so I, I call it planetary science. I don't get too fancy about that. 
Um, my, my path is in some ways very direct and in other ways a little circuitous. So I was always interested in space. Um, I kind of grew up during that era where we had the Voyagers flying by the outer planets. We had the space shuttle program. We had Sally Ride. So, you know, my end goal was to be a scientist and work for NASA. And, you know, given what I wanted to do as a 10-year-old, I would be walking on Mars right now. Um, <laughs> but that hasn't right. happened. So uh, I got involved in working in planetary atmospheres in the 90s, actually, when uh, Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 was about to hit Jupiter. So that's about when I started working on the planets. And I kind of haven't left since just doing planetary atmospheres. Um, but it's been really exciting. So what was your undergraduate education path to get to where you are now? So I majored in space sciences at uh, Florida Tech. And at the time, the degree was kind of a combination of science and engineering. So I got a lot of background into how uh, a spacecraft works, into planetary celestial mechanics, um, all those nuts and bolts behind a mission and not just the science. And I think that's actually served me really well in my career because a lot of what I do now is robotic exploration. Yeah, it seems like people usually come at it from the other direction of doing the science, you know, geology or meteorology, and then going and learning the spacecraft stuff later. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, it gives me a different perspective, which actually makes mm -hmm. it much easier to talk to the engineers. I'm not one of the crazy scientists that want unobtainium. <laughs> you know, I, I understand the limits. <laughs> I find... Uh, and those of us that design equipment greatly appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say, talking to engineers is a life skill most scientists need to hone better. That's yes, for sure. yes, indeed. <laughs> so, when you were, you said you were captivated by Shoemaker Levy Nine, as I think you know, we all were. Is that what led you to sort of the outer gas giants versus the inner rocky planets? It is. Um, I was invited to join the Hubble Space Telescope team. Uh, I was a graduate student, and my advisor got me working on some of the early Hubble images before the impact. And suddenly, you know, here's this really interesting planet with all these changes on it and clouds and neat features. And then, of course, we had the full week of comet impacts and, and getting to know those clouds and memorizing all the things going on. And I kind of never looked back because, you know, I had these beautiful, turbulent, swirling atmospheres and they're, they're different every single time I look at them. And, you know, that's just so exciting. <laughs> and there's, I mean, there's a lot of atmosphere out there in the gas giants, right? Yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we were talking, um, <laughs> we were interviewing people talking about Jupiter and Saturn. It's, it's very disappointing for a geologist. I mean, because, yeah, it's all meteorology. But that's okay for me. But most, most geologists, I think, are a little sad about that. <laughs> so then how did you get to working on Neptune and Uranus? So I worked on the Galileo mission to Jupiter and then the Cassini mission to Saturn. And so the next logical follow-on behind those big flagships would, of course, be one to Uranus or Neptune. Um, but I was involved with the Decadal Survey, which is when the group of scientists essentially get together to determine the priorities for the next decade. And the decade we were looking at was the one that started in 2013. And as we started to lay out what we knew about all four of the outer planets, it was obvious that we had maybe didn't know the answer to every single question, but we had a lot of information, a lot of data on Jupiter, and we were going to have a lot of information on Saturn after the end of Cassini. And then you got to Uranus and Neptune, and there were those single flybys in the 80s, and that's it. And it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, what are we missing out here? There's, there's no doubt gonna be great things to learn about the atmospheres and all those moons. 
So, you know, it was, it, in my mind, it's kind of the next logical step. And while I do a lot of research still on Jupiter primarily and some on Saturn, I've gotten much more involved in doing Hubble and ground-based observations of Neptune and Uranus. So for me, it's kind of the next logical progression. I, so I don't want to get too far ahead in our questions here, but I mean, this is a good time. What What is next then? Because we don't know a lot about those. I feel like, you know, Cassini and Galileo and Juno were so awesome. So what's planned for Neptune and Uranus then? Sure. So to keep in mind, you know, it takes a long time to get one of these big missions together. And if mm -hmm. you look at Cassini, it was first conceived of in the 80s, right, after the Voyager yeah. flyby. And it didn't launch until 1997. You know, there's a pretty big <laughs> yeah. gap there. So we've been talking about this for quite a while. And in the last decadal, the um, next priority mission after starting the Mars sample return and going back to Europa was to do one of the ice giants. So that's already in our decadal. Um, so we've been doing follow-on studies to look at how feasible it is. What could you do? Can you get an orbiter out there? What can you do to get the maximum science? Excellent. So you said that we didn't have a lot of information on these now. We've had the flybys and then, of course, the ground-based observations. Going back to the beginning of these planets, what do we know about their formation? Well, we don't know a whole lot, right? We're trying to figure out how solar systems form. And for a while, we thought we knew everything about how you formed our solar system. We got it all figured out. There were the oddballs, you know, Uranus in particular. Um, but then we started finding extrasolar planet systems. And what we found is you have these giant planets very close to their stars, and we needed to be able to explain that in a formation model. And as we started to apply those models and look back at the solar system, suddenly the solar system didn't make sense. How did we have these rocky planets up close, and why didn't our giant planets move in and sweep them up, um, which is what we think happened in some of these exoplanet systems. So we've ended up with much more complicated models, um, which are hard to prove, but some of them right. have Jupiter migrating in pretty far, and Saturn following it and kind of grabbing it and stopping it. And you need all four of the giant planets then to pull them all back into the right positions and put everything where we think we see it today. And so when you do all that, you still end up with some problems. You have very narrow time windows where some of these planets can form and be in the right place at the right time. So there's a lot we still need to understand about exactly where they were and when they formed in order to make that model work even for our solar system. So that's why it's still a little bit of a, we don't know how and when they formed. It, it seems like that's a, a pretty easy trap to fall into in, in any science to say, you know, that we're the, we're the special case mm -hmm. in the generalized model. Uh, but I, I didn't know that there was still that much uncertainty about how this process happened in terms of the timing and everything. Well, you know, we're talking billions and billions of years ago, um, which of course right. there's no record of, uh, unless you can get certain measurements on each of these planets. But the, the biggest problem you have in any model is, is the, is the solution unique? You found something that fits, but is it the only thing that fits? Right. And, and that's where you run into the problem. And that's when, again, you look at these other solar systems go, wait a second, that can't be right. So, you know, we're, we're always still learning and, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of this puzzle. I will say that the uh, super planet crash that's posted on the astronomy picture of the day, you know, that fun thing where you can um, put planets in and try to build a solar system. <laughs> like, it's really hard. It it's is. hard to do. It <laughs> like, is. Uh, so what would we hope to learn from visiting with a spacecraft, Neptune and Uranus, that would help us sort of solve 
things about their formation? There's two or three things you absolutely want to measure, okay? And so the first one is the noble gases. And the noble gases, hydrogen, helium, argon, not, not hydrogen, sorry, argon, xenon, neon, are nice because they don't interact with anything else. Right. And so if you can measure their abundances, they haven't changed over time uh, the way something else will, like carbon, which can be pulled into methane or CO or CO2. And so when you can measure the noble gases, those are very specific to when and where they formed in the solar system. And helium gets tricky. Helium and neon can both rain out. And so you kind of need the suite of all those noble gases. The other thing you need are thermal measurements. You want to know what the heat balance of the planet is, how much sunlight it gets, and then how much heat it radiates off. And when we look at our giant planets, almost all of them have extra internal heat, which is left over from when they formed and as they're cooling down, except for Uranus. Uranus doesn't seem to. On the other hand, Neptune seems to have too much. And so to explain that, we need to understand what's going on with helium rain, uh, again, those noble gas abundances, but also how old they are. So those two pieces of information together tell you quite a lot about when and where things formed. So that, those are some of the key measurements that we'd really like to know. Could you get those measurements remotely from an orbiter, or would you have to have something inserted into the into the atmosphere? Obviously, that'd be the best, but... Well, for, for the thermal measurements, you can get that from an orbiter or flyby. Right. You, you need to see the reflected light on the lit side, and then you need to see the thermal on the, the dark side. So that you right. don't want to do from inside the atmosphere anyway. Uh, the noble gases you have to get into the atmosphere because they aren't reactive, so we don't see any signature of them whatsoever when you're looking from right. the outside. Right. Okay. So you said that Uranus and Neptune were weird in terms of this uh, not enough heat and too much heat, but there are a lot of other things strange about them as well, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. They're, they're kind of the extremes of the solar system out there. So uh, Uranus is tilted way over on its side. Um, which, of course, is just weird. Anyway, I don't know how you do that with a giant planet like that. You, you <laughs> kind of need something else really big to hit it and knock it over at the right time. Because if it all formed at the same time as the solar system and, and wasn't uh, somehow collided like that, it, it should be rotating in the same plane as everybody else. So, so the fact that it's tilted over is just really hard to explain. Um, we also have um, very weird magnetic fields out there. And so we're used to this idea of a, of a magnetic field being formed by a molten interior, right? A molten metallic kind of layer of some sort, but you're used to a North Pole and a South Pole. And they're directly aligned in the middle of the planet because that's where your fluid dynamic layer is. Um, and that's not true in Uranus and Neptune. It's off to the side a little bit. And again, I have no idea how you form something like that. You know, there's, there's just a lot of mysteries in these weird little planets out there that you know, we need more data. We need we need something that can measure the magnetic field in detail. Um, and then, of course, as I say, this thermal balance, the gravity, something to make us understand the internal structure and, and how you can get these sorts of uh, scenarios. And so when you said that Uranus is tilted way over, we're talking tilted almost 90 degrees, It's just right? past 90 degrees, actually, yeah. And how inclined is the magnetic field to that? Is it you know, at a, at a 45, or is it closer to a, a north-south dipole than that? Um, it's it's how offset it is from the actual rotational pole. It's I think Neptune's about 30 degrees. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember Uranus's, but it's it's not just that it's tilted; it's that it's literally not centered on the planet. 
it's pushed over to one oh. side. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's really uh, okay, strange. Yeah. Mm, that's a problem. Does yeah. it still act like a dipole, or...? I think it does have a little bit of a quadrupole moment to it because of that, really? but yeah. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> and being offset like that would probably have some pretty serious implications for any solar shielding as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, they're extremely complicated. They make what they call spaghetti plots, um, similar to seeing like hurricane, hurricane tracks. I mean, it's this yep. tangled mess of magnetic field lines. It's really impressive. Your, your compass would be a mess there. <laughs> well, it's like our almost, you know, 90% dipole field healer here on Earth, the spaghetti plots still look terrible. So I can't mm-hmm. even imagine what like Uranus's would look like. Um, so when you're talking about the atmospheres and you're studying them and you've got this over 90 degree tilt, I mean, what does that mean for atmospheric dynamics? Yeah, it's really strange. So, so you get half a year where, you know, the sun is at the North Pole or the South Pole, you know, with, with right. the equinoxes in between. Um, when Uranus went into equinox the last time, we were actually really excited to watch that and see if we got more storms because suddenly the equator is what's getting all the, the heat. And we did. It wasn't immediate. There's always a little bit of a time lag. But generally, Uranus is pretty quiet compared to Neptune. We don't get as much of the storm outbreaks. We're still seeing storms even though it's, it's away from equinox now. But yeah, it's just really, really uh, sluggish, I guess would be the way to put it. It's got a sluggish atmosphere. Hmm. Is that just its proximity to the sun? Well, okay. Well, no, you said Uranus, Neptune is still... Right, Uranus is closer than Neptune, and Neptune has more, yeah. so... Yeah, no, that, yeah, I realized that as soon as I said that. <laughs> That's really strange. Huh, Okay. And so you mentioned uh, a hydrogen rain. What do we think the the primary cloud types and precipitation types are? On all the outer planets, of course, it's pretty cold, and they are primarily hydrogen atmospheres. So the clouds that you see are really trace gases. On uh, Jupiter and Saturn, you're seeing ammonia ice for the most part at the top. For Saturn, that ammonia ice is a little bit deeper even because it's a little bit colder. So that's why Saturn's very hazy. You've got more of a haze over that cloud layer, but occasionally you'll see storms pop up. But again, they're more likely going to be ammonia ice. When you get out to Uranus and Neptune, it's so cold, the clouds are much more likely to be methane ice. So so you go through this series where whatever can condense out condenses out. And as the planets get colder, that goes down deeper and the next thing condenses out and so on. So those upper clouds are uh, probably um, methane ice, and you might get some H2S ice as well, hydrogen sulfide. So do we think that gas clathrates, uh, it's like methane hydrates and so on, play a role on these planets? They certainly can, and you can also do the same with water and ammonia, where you, you get them kind of sequestered with each other. And then being strange atmospheres, uh, we've talked to several people about what the scale height of their atmosphere is. Are, are these really deep atmospheres and you have very tall convective storms or are they relatively compact atmospheres? We really don't have a lot of information on it. Um, Saturn's is certainly extended over uh, Jupiter's, but we don't have as much information on the other two. Um, So I'm not sure if I can give you an exact scale height. Uh, Because they are colder, of course, they're going to be a little bit pulled down as well. So, Right. Hmm. Are the dynamics of the storms especially the ones on Neptune, uh, does it look like Jupiter? So that's kind of fun, and it has to do more with the wind field. (laughs) So as we go farther out in the solar system, believe it or not, the winds get higher and higher. So Neptune, we've got winds that are four times faster than Jupiter. 
I mean, they're really extreme, but what we don't have is that banded structure where the winds alternate back and forth as much. Uh-huh. So it, it's a broader kind of um, jet streams that there's only like two, one in each hemisphere plus the equator. Uh-huh. So, so you don't have that, that kind of structure, so you don't see bands. But what you do see is because of that, the storms can move around differently. And so on Jupiter, they can't move towards the pole or the equator because they're kind of trapped in a latitude band because of those right. winds. On Neptune, they can move poleward or equatorward. And so that is what we see is that you get these big storms like the Great Dark Spot or the newer Great Dark uh-huh. Spots, and they can move towards the equator and get broken apart by Coriolis forces, or they can move towards the pole and dissipate, uh, whereas on Jupiter, they can't. Ah, interesting. Okay, that's really cool. So, so the Coriolis force near the equator can be strong enough to overwhelm the pressure gradient force? Exactly, because you can't cross the equator, right? The, the sign reverses. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So basically, if it goes towards the equator, it's gone. I mean, do we see any storms on Uranus? I mean, not as exciting as Neptune, but are there fun dynamics, even though it's slower and stranger? There are. There are storms that pop up. Again, they don't okay. last quite as long. We have never, at this point, observed a vortex, you know, an actual great, ah, okay. great dark spot, great whatever color spot. Um, as we have on the others, but but we do see smaller storms that pop up, and some of them can be somewhat round. Okay. And so you mentioned that you've done some uh, ground-based and space-based telescope work, uh, in addition to, of course, looking at the the flyby data that we have. What kinds of techniques can we use with ground-based telescopes, and what can we learn from those? So from the ground-based telescopes, we're doing a lot of um, infrared in particular, for one thing, we get adaptive optics, which gives us exquisite resolution even in the infrared for these extended planets. So that works really well on Uranus and Neptune. But also you get the maximum contrast in the in the infrared, particularly around the, the methane wavelengths. So you can get the clouds to go very bright and the planet itself goes almost black. And so you get really strong contrast and you can look much more at the details of the storms than you could in the visible. Uh, the visible is challenging from the Earth unless you can get there's newer versions of adaptive optics that they're trying out in visible to try to, to get higher resolution. But at the moment, you know, it's Hubble for the most part for the visible. So on Neptune, when we discovered this new great dark spot a few years ago, Hubble was the only one that could see it because it was the only one that could see the visible wavelengths to actually see it was dark. Everything else was in, in the infrared, so you just saw the bright clouds. So with the, are the adaptive adaptive uh, optics, the these big multi-part mirrors where we can steer each one? Is, is that the technology that we're talking about here, There's, or is that something different? It's the same idea. There's a couple different versions of it. That That's one. There's some where it's a, it's a single mirror, but it has little actuators underneath it, and it literally will push and pull the mirror um, at a very high rate. And so they track a guide star or a laser guide star, you know, a made-up made point source, and they can watch how that's changing and, and force the mirror to adjust really rapidly to, to make that back down to a point, and that's essentially how you do it. It's a little tougher on the planets because they're extended objects, so sometimes you can use one of the moons instead, um, but a lot of times it is a guide star. But but that's exactly the idea. You're trying to take out the effect of the atmospheric turbulence here on Earth. Wow, that's that's some pretty amazing and uh, I would imagine pretty tight <laughs> control loop technology. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that math just kind of made my head hurt a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, so we keep talking about these atmospheres and storms, but, I mean, are there any rocks on Neptune and Uranus that we think are out underneath 
all this stuff? Or? Uh, no, not really, because, again, these are the <laughs> gas giants. There's probably a core down in the middle of some size, mm-hmm. but it might be, let's say, the size of the Earth, right? And then okay. you've got this big extended atmosphere on top of it. Um, and we don't really know, as I say, what's going on deep down because we can't see there. We think on Uranus and uh, Neptune, because it is colder, you probably have icy layers. And it, it might not be a solid sheet of ice. It just might be extra slushy compared to, you know, a little more fluidy on Jupiter and Saturn. But these are cold temperatures for all four of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about the moons? Now, the moons are fun. So, because <laughs> they always are. But the, um, the moons of Uranus, there's no one big moon. So we're used to having a big moon that really helps us if we, if we go there because we can use that, the gravity to help drive an orbital right. tour. We don't have that at Uranus. Um, we have some decent sized moons. We have Umbriel, which looks like it has maybe an icy little ring or polar cap, maybe salt something near its pole, which is kind of interesting. Um, we have Ariel and Miranda. Some of these have fairly young surfaces, so there could be some activity on those. We don't know yet. So, so Uranus's moons are still quite interesting, even without having that big standout moon there. Um, the other thing, of course, is because Uranus is orbiting on its side, you know, getting to those moons is a little different than we're used to because the <laughs> equatorial planes, you know, in the other direction. So, so it creates its own little <laughs> challenges. But um, Neptune, on the other hand, is interesting for a different reason. We do have a large moon, Triton, but Neptune's moons appear to all be captured. So they don't look like they formed at the same time as Neptune. So we might be looking at Kuiper Belt objects or, or you know, far, farther out objects that Neptune caught, which is interesting in its own right. And Neptune, uh, Neptune's big moon, Triton, we do know has activity. And so when Voyager 2 flew by, we could see little streaks and it looks like it has active nitrogen ice geysers. So really cold temperature, but uh, we still think there's activity out there. Uh, so, so how do we? It, <laughs> Sorry, Shannon. Yep, go. same question. <laughs> so is it the shape of the moons that tells us whether they're captured or formed concurrently with the planets? Uh, and if they're rotating in the right direction relative to the planet. So, okay. Yeah. yeah I see if, that. They're, if they're going in the wrong way, um, it had to have been caught. So, so okay. there's there's a few lines that we can we can do to figure that out. But but you know, Neptune's sur- uh, sorry, Triton's surface is really really strange. Like I said, we have these geysers. We think near. This, pole or at least high latitudes there's a, a transition to what looks like cantaloupe skin uh, texture on the terrain um, in some ways it's very similar to Pluto so that would be a really interesting comparison Triton to Pluto I have that was my that was my next question was that sounds like stuff that we found when New Horizons <laughs> got to Pluto so yeah oh yeah it's, it's incredible interesting and this is all data from Voyager flybys that this is based yep. on so what kind of data did we get from the Voyager flybys? Uh, obviously magnetic fields, because we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. But what else was there? So they did have an imaging system, both narrow angle and wide angle cameras, which was nice for being able to get the view from far out and then close up. Uh, because they were flybys and pretty rapid, you know, you only saw one side of any of these moons, uh, and sometimes only from a pretty far distance. So we really have a whole lot of terra incognita, the other side that we never even saw. Um, there was an infrared spectrometer, similar to one we had on Cassini, um, which looked out much farther in the infrared than your eyes can see, and that can tell you quite a bit about surface temperatures. Um, although these things are so cold, it's really at the limit with what you could do there. 
Um, and there were there were a few other instruments as well, but those are probably the big ones for the data people recognize. Certainly, the camera gave us the images that everybody's seen. Right. So when you when you're planning a new mission out here, is the biggest challenge doing the you know, the, the the delta v that you need to slow down and interrogate these systems? Biggest challenge is power. Um, oh, okay. Which which of course drives everything else. Uh, because it's so far away, we really can't use solar arrays. At least we don't have the technology yet, unless you were going to fly, you know, something that was the size of 10 football fields. Um, and then it would just be a big solar array. Uh, right. so, so they pretty much have to be nuclear powered. But even that's a challenge. We don't have enormous uh, nuclear systems. Uh, this is the radioisotope thermal generators that generate the electricity. And, and they have lifetime limits on them as well. So even, even though Cassini lasted 17 years, if you, if you plan to take 12 years to get out there, you have to have a certain amount of reliability to ensure the mission's gonna work. And so we have to be a little careful with the power and the propulsion systems. So, so there's lifetime limits, but the power limit's really the kicker because you have to have enough power for your science instruments. But the worst part is you have to have that power to communicate home. And the transmitters take a lot of power. So that's really our power-hungry problem, is getting the communication back to Earth to send back all this fabulous data. And I, I would guess that communicating over that long of a distance, there's also a, a bandwidth issue. There can be, there can be. Our, our better, um, we use the deep space network, and up until fairly recently, that was entirely the X-band wavelength. There's another band you can use called KA, which can, in theory, give you more um, data down to the ground. But you're right, that beam spreads out. So <laughs> it's hard to get it all the way back to here. And you know, they're investigating things like laser communications, but they're not quite ready yet, I think, for Uranus or Neptune, just because they are so far out and we haven't tested anything that far. So we're hoping to test that from Mars soon. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that uh, laser communications was that far along to where it was almost to a testing phase. It's, it's, it's a tech demo kind of thing. Oh, wow. That's gonna be a good one to watch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Amy, I wanted to go back because I keep thinking about it. Um, you're talking about all these exoplanet systems and trying to compare them and all that. I mean, do we see any that look like our setup? We do, don't we? Or not really? I don't know that we have any yet that look exactly like our setup with, you uh -huh. know, rockier planets and then gas giants out farther. We certainly have multi-planet systems that have you know, five or seven. I think the Trappist system was probably the most interesting one so far because it, it did have several planets possibly in a habitable zone. But I don't think mm -hmm. we found anything that looks close to ours just close. yet. Okay. All right. So I'll keep playing on this, uh, uh, the super, <laughs> super planet smash to try to get it solved then. Absolutely. <laughs> we do see a lot of Neptunes out there though, or Neptune sized planets. Oh. So. Okay. So what are some of the things in uh, both research and technology that you're most excited about right now to see come to fruition? I think um, hmm. from technology for the ground-based telescope, it's going to be this advanced adaptive optics idea that you can really do it on visible wavelength telescopes. That, that'll be a game changer because things like Hubble, you know, they're spectacular, but they're time limited. There's a lot of competition for them. And I think being able to ease that up so everybody can really get their data will just revolutionize our, our field. So I think that's going to be a big deal. Um, 
in terms of spacecraft, it's going to be these advanced communications, advanced power systems, the things that enable us to get into deep, dark, cold space you know, faster and better and get more back. So that, that's going to be important in enabling these missions. And then research-wise, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on right now. We're starting to look at Neptune and Uranus as if they were exoplanets. So we've done some observations where we use the Kepler Space Telescope, for example, to observe the light curve of Neptune and Uranus and say, what would we know about them if we didn't know anything else? And uh, that's been kind of interesting because, of course, we have resolved data of them. And if you look at the light curves, you see they're really variable. And it doesn't just turn that you take the, the light curve and run it through a 4A transform and you come out with the rotation period. You don't, actually. Mm -hmm. You rarely do. You come up with the, the period of the clouds. And the clouds are all moving. So you get a bunch of different periods and they change brightness on every single day. And uh, people that weren't thinking about that were surprised, don't, you know, that clouds change that much because we have a very static view in our heads, which is really not true. So I think, I think that's been a lot of fun, um, going back and taking that step back and then trying to apply it back outwards. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of going on. Uh, we're, we're still monitoring both Uranus and Neptune from Hubble and from other observatories. So we're, we're getting yearly maps now where we can start to measure the cycles on which the clouds change, the colors change, the winds change. So we're hopeful we're going to learn a lot about how those cold atmospheres work by doing that. It, it's really amazing that we know as much as we do with <laughs> the observation power that we have for something that's so far mm -hmm. away. Yes. Yeah. I know you think of them as really not being far away because, you know, you just go through the line of, oh, yeah, these are our planets. But this is actually much more complicated than, um, yeah, just looking out the window. Yeah, space is pretty empty. It's it's pretty far yeah. apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, how does it feel to work on things like the Decadal Survey or to start planning these missions that are so far in the future? Like, how do you keep yourself excited about it when it's so far away? Well, you know, I think it's kind of two separate things. The decadal surveys are so important. You want to get it right. You want to right. make sure you have a program that's going to advance the science and benefits the whole science community. So it's a lot of responsibility. Uh, so so that, that sort of thing you take really seriously. And it is a lot of work over a couple of years to, to put one of those together. Um, but, you know, maintaining the excitement on a mission that may not launch, say, until the 2030s, I kind of feel like I'm at the point of my career now where I can help shepherd these things along and really it's not going to be my mission. It's something that I have to keep the folks coming up underneath me really excited about because I might be there for it to launch, but really they're going to be the ones flying the mission and, and getting the data back, doing the analysis. So it's getting folks like them excited that we can make this mission happen if everybody, you know, puts in the effort. And so if we have some listeners that are uh, younger and interested in getting into planetary science and one day being the folks that are working on these missions, do you have some advice for them? Well, I usually tell folks to, of course, you know, study as much science and math as you can. There's, there's a lot of complicated problems out there. But we really need the diversity of people, the diversity of opinions, the diversity of science, because that's what's going to actually expand things going forward. So we need people who may not view themselves as a traditional scientist in a lab coat, but maybe have some cool ideas or have at least the interest because hard work can do a lot to get you where you need to be. And I think the other thing is being flexible. 
you know, I, I didn't follow exactly the career path I thought I was going to, but I've gotten to do absolutely amazing things and worked on lots of great projects because I didn't look at myself as I can only work on one thing. You know, I can work on whatever's out there if it's interesting to work on and, and somebody will let me. And, and I try to remind folks of that. Stay flexible. And if an opportunity presents itself, jump on it. Don't ever think you can't do it because you don't know it. You can learn it. I love that. And I find it really heartening that in this solar system series, you know, we've talked to some really great people who have had some very weird career paths. And every single person has said what you just said, Amy, is that this wasn't what I had planned, but it's been amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's very important to remember when you're stuck and are freaking out about, oh, this wasn't what I wanted to do. Well, exactly. there's still, yeah, great opportunities out there. Exactly. And so a question that we've been asking all of our guests was if you could, through the magic of some unknown technology, travel <laughs> to Neptune or Uranus and live there or orbit and study for a month, what would you do? Where would you go? Gosh, I'm not sure a month is long enough, first of all. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it would be really kind of cool to, you know, park myself on my campsite on, uh, say, Triton. And just stare at that atmosphere, you know, this big planet above me, and actually study the weather real time in full detail, you know, three-dimensional, um, and get that long, long coverage of it. Because I think that's what we need to be able to move forward on understanding all those complicated dynamics. That's awesome. So you're just going to set up the Triton Weather Service. There and, you go. Uh... <laughs> Might be a little cold, but hey. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait for those seven-day forecasts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Amy, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I think just, you know, everybody should keep looking up and keep looking towards the future. Let's let's get these missions to happen. Excellent. And if folks want to keep up with your research or mission progress or anything like that, how can you be found on the Internet? So if you go to nasa.gov, um, I have a number of projects. We have some that are at nasa.gov slash Hubble. But generally speaking, you can also just Google my name and you'll, you'll find my website pretty easily. So. Perfect. And we will make sure to link that into the show notes. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank yes, you. this is super awesome. We appreciate it. Well, Shannon, I would say if you're looking for somewhere to do some more planetary research, Neptune and Uranus are the place to go because they're really strange. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I knew it was strange going in, but I think I learned a little bit more about how really, really strange they are. Um, yeah. I can't, I, yeah. I hope we get another spacecraft out there sometime soon just to really see what's going on. Oh, absolutely. Well, so I think it's time then to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> so this is less of a paper, more of a announcement about something a business is doing. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it's not a fun paper at all, but I figured we had to talk about this. And this is probably old news, really, but I just found out about it. So that makes it new and exciting. Um and this is what a certain company called Ale, A-L-E, which is obviously what drew us to it, uh, has planned <laughs> for the 2020 Olympics. But they're actually sort of starting this a little bit early. And it has to do with some manufactured space excitement. Yeah. So 
they are going to test this in 2019, actually, uh, but they're going to put satellites into orbit that have hundreds of little pellets in them. And these pellets are made of different materials. Different materials burn different colors when they are burning up as on reentry to the atmosphere. So they're going to make fireworks. They're basically going to make artificial shooting stars. Yeah, this is crazy. But I mean, they're taking, you know, they're taking this to a whole new level of like studying, you know, the atmospheric trajectories, the angles of incidence, velocities of these materials, and really trying to recreate a meteor shower. It's not just like, hey, here's these cool fireworks. It's these look like meteors. Here, they're different colors. You can order them for your party. <laughs> yeah, so, and it's pretty cool because they said it takes about 30 minutes and change from the time they launch out of the satellite to the time they actually start their fire entry. So to do the test over Hiroshima, they're going to chuck these things out of the satellite over Australia. That is unbelievable to me and so cool. Like, I can't wait to see this. I was really excited about all the crazy drone work that went on at the last Olympics. <laughs> like, I can't imagine what these artificial meteor showers are going to look like. They've got what looks like an artist rendering of a bunch of people at maybe a concert or something with all of these meteors coming in <laughs> overhead. Yeah. <laughs> that looks like an amazingly massive concert. Um, it says that they're going to be ready next year, right, to uh, to test these things. Yeah, so tech demo over Hiroshima yep. in 19. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, um, I can't wait for this. This is kind of scary and super awesome at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm very curious how much it costs to do this. I mean, this is not something you're going to do for, you know, your kid's fifth birthday. <laughs> well, I mean, some people probably will. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, um, it, it says that, you know, there's a lot of universities working with them to really get this right. So it's not, although most people are going to just see it as fun, there's actually a lot of tech and scientific research that's going behind this. Absolutely. I mean, of course, there are other implications for being able to very accurately drop things from space. Yes, mm -hmm, exactly. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite part was in this, there's a Daily Mirror, Mirror article about it. And uh, Lena Okajima, who is the founder and the CEO of this AL, said, these days people are usually looking down at their smartphones. I want to make people look up again. I think that's that cool. That sounds like an admirable goal. <laughs> exactly. And I thought it fit right in with um, our march through the stars. Yeah. There you go. So satellites creating artificial shooting stars. Excellent. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, it sounds like uh, that's what you should have done, John, for your side swagger there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Too late. <laughs> well, if you have an idea for what things you would want to chuck out of a satellite and watch them burn up in the atmosphere <laughs> on reentry, or request for your favorite color of shooting star at the Olympics, go ahead and send those to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Uh, we're on the Slack chat room, the software underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate it. If that's something you would like to do, you can head on over to patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 